I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 6. When I first started looking at this passage, I um, was contemplating uh, doing all 11 verses in one message, and the more I thought about verse 6, the more I realized that that was just not possible. Verse 6 is kind of the watershed in Romans chapter 6 of all the different theories of how we contend with sin as Christians. Do we get help? Do we get deliverance? Does our sin nature get gone? (laughs) What happens? There are people that think that. I don't think you're here this morning, but, you know. And so that's kind of the watershed of how we deal with sin. And I'm going to be um, talking about that next week and giving it the time that it deserves. And so this morning we want to look at the first four verses of Romans 6. If you'll look in your Bibles, I'll read and you can follow along. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Father, I just want to stop and ask that you would give us understanding of these verses and that, Lord, throughout this room you would, you would bring illumination and insight that will be very practical and very helpful for how we live our lives every day. And I pray that you would do that for the glory of Jesus Christ and for our edification, for our growth and, and, and development. And so help me to make it clear. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, different people have different teaching styles. And probably all of you have heard of the Socratic method. Socrates taught by asking questions of his pupils. He would ask them things that would, that would provoke thought. And some of those questions are sort of known as rhetorical questions. They're questions that are intended to, to kind of make you look at the facts. They may or may not deserve an answer, but they are intended to make you think about the reality of, of what's being described. For example, in the Garden of Eden, when God came looking for Adam and Eve after their sin, God said, Adam, where are you? God did not need information. He wasn't wondering where they were hiding. They had not gotten lost to him in that sense. But Adam and Eve did not really know where they were. And God asked them that question to make them think about their condition. Well, Paul uses rhetorical questions throughout his letters, but never more than in the book of Romans, where when he pauses to ask one of these questions... He's really underscoring for us and saying, do you fully understand what I've told you thus far? Are you with me? Do you comprehend what's going on? 
And this is one of those questions. When we come to chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And the real thing that Paul wants us to think about is, have you understood everything I've said about grace? Do you know what God's grace is now that I've talked to you about it for like three chapters? Of course, they didn't have chapters when he wrote this letter. We added those. But for, for some time, Paul has been focusing on the grace of God in, in cleansing us from sin through Jesus Christ. And he says, do you really have a handle on that now? Do you understand? And one of the logical questions that you, or one of the logical conclusions that you might draw as you listen to Paul expound on grace is, hey, we got a free pass. It doesn't matter how I live. No matter what I do, God will forgive me. His grace is so big that it will cover everything that I ever do. And you know what? If you drew that conclusion, you're exactly right. Are you with me? And some of you are not. I, can, I know. It's already like, okay, where's he going with this? I want you to think about it for a moment. According to the Scriptures, God is infinite. Can you connect with infinite? If you can, you're better than I am. But just go out some night and look up at the stars. They're not infinite, but they're pretty big. And, and as far as you can see, get out in the woods, get away from the towns, get away from light, artificial light, in the dead of night without a moon, and look at the stars. They go like forever. The more you can see, the tinier they get. There's just millions of them up there, and they go forever. They're not infinite, but they're pretty big. Infinity means that that has no bounds. It has no limitation. There is no end to it. It goes forever. Now, I want you to just hold that thought for a moment, and I want you to think about human beings, and the subject of sin. How much sinning can you do? <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> okay, We're capable of a lot of stuff. In fact, the Bible says we're capable of more than we even realize. The Scripture says, The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So, so we really can't even fathom our own depravity. I mean, we have motives going on in there that we don't even understand. We do things for reasons. You know, some people spend uh, tens of thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours in the counselor's office trying to figure out why they do the stuff they do. We have stuff going on inside of our heart that we don't even comprehend. And yet, if you think about it, no matter how much sinning you do, no matter how many bad things you do that are contrary to God's character, no matter how often you pile them up, you're only going to live so many days. And you can only do so much in every day. And when you get to the end of your life, the sum total of all the sins you've ever committed in your entire existence 
can be summarized and put together in a finite container, if you can imagine that with me. Do you follow me? You're finite. You cannot commit an infinite number of sins. You may think some people that you know can commit an infinite number of sins, but they really can't. No human being can commit an infinite number of sins because you're a finite person. You're limited. Even in your evil, there are boundaries. You can only go so far. And furthermore, if you took all the sins of all the human beings that have ever lived and put them all together in one big container... I don't know how big it would have to be, maybe big as the Milky Way or something, but if you could put it all together in one big container, it still has defined boundaries. Only so many, only so much, only so bad, only so long, and then it's done. But God's grace is boundless. God's grace has no limitation. God's grace is infinite in its scope. And Paul tells us in the last chapter, and this is what he is playing off of as we open chapter 6, he says, where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. And so if you've been following the whole theme of justification by faith, being cleansed on the basis of your trust and confidence in what Jesus did on the cross, if you've been following that, Paul is saying, you have come to rightly understand that you cannot outsend the grace of God. There's nothing you can do that will make you unredeemable. There's nothing you can do that will put you beyond the grip of God's grace, as Max Licato puts it. You cannot outsend the bountiful grace and forgiveness of God. Not only can you not out it as an unbeliever, a non-Christian, as a Christian. There's nothing you are ever going to do that is going to make God go, <laughs> I can't believe that. He knows your condition. He understands your heart. You're never going to do anything that is going to take Him by surprise. And you will never do anything as a child of God that will catch him so off guard that he's going to say, you know what, when I talked about grace, man, I did not have that in mind. I cannot deal with that. That You're out, out of the game, that's too much. God's grace is boundless. It's infinite. It's unlimited. And no matter how much sin you do or how much sin we all do together, there is nothing that will ever be bigger than the grace of God. And so Paul is basically saying, did you get it? Have you understood? Why is it important that you understand this? Let me just stop here and ask this question, because it, it, it is important that you understand this. Why is it important that you understand the boundless grace of God before we go any further into how to live life successfully as a Christian? It's because as long as you think that God's blessing in your life, God's work in your life, God's relationship to you is somehow based on your performance, 
you're going to be frustrated. You're going to feel like a failure. You're going to get angry. And you're going to have a certain amount of anxiety and confusion. What do I mean by that? You're not ever going to know when you talk to God in prayer whether he's listening or not. Because you won't know, have I done enough to get his attention? Have I been good enough to get him to answer? Have I accomplished enough good works to win his favor? And as long as that reciprocity in the relationship exists, God will only do good for me when I do good for him, and his blessing in my life is directly related to my performance. As long as that is your mindset, you will always be in conflict with God. There will always be tension. You're either going to feel guilty, you're going to feel frustrated, you're going to feel defeated, or you're going to be anxious and confused. Paul wants to settle that issue once and for all. He wants us to know that all of the bad deeds you have ever done and all the ones you will ever do have been put on Jesus at the cross. And as far as God is concerned, from a judicial, from a judgment, a courthouse response, your debt is paid. You have been freed. You owe God nothing because Jesus has paid the whole price. Now, we need to get this because that's what enables us to move close to God in a relationship that allows us to walk with Him, availing ourselves of the help that He wants to give without feeling this tension. But Paul raises the question, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? He says, if you're with me, you might have drawn the conclusion that you can do anything and still skate, be scot-free in, in retribution. And Paul says, if you understand what I've said about justification by faith, you're right. But he said, why would you? Why would you want to go that route? Why would you want to continue in sin since we died to sin, since that's our old way of life? Why would you want to live there any longer? Listen, let me explain. Most people come to some kind of decision of faith in Jesus Christ because they're fed up with something in their life. Okay? May not be the most altruistic motive, but hey, it works, you know? It would be nice to think that people came to faith in Christ because they realized there was a God in heaven that loved them and that deserved their worship and adoration, and they just woke up one day and said, you know what, I should be serving God instead of myself. But no one ever does that. No one ever has that thought originally. What they do is they get in a mess, and they come to God and they say, fix me. I am really broken. I need some help. You realize that, that you've sinned in some way or another. You realize that you've got habits that are dragging you down. You realize you have a personality that's just grating on everybody. You're driving people away in your relationships. You realize there's something going on inside of me, and I need some help. Now, Paul is asking the logical question. You came to Jesus Christ to get help. 
why, after getting the help, getting the forgiveness, getting the deliverance, why would you want to go on living that old way? Why would you want to keep doing that? That's the thing you wanted to get rid of to begin with. So why would you go back there? No one in their right mind would do that. Furthermore, the scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. God changes our heart. And I want to be quick to say here that if you have come into a true relationship with Jesus Christ, you may be struggling with sin, but I'll tell you this, you don't like it anymore. Because you know every time you step out of bounds, there's something that comes in you that says you're hurting the one that loves you. You're hurting the one that loves you. What's wrong with you? You come under conviction. You feel guilty. There, there's this tension in your life because your heart has changed. You're not drawn to those things anymore. That's not, what, that's not what you want to do. There is a transformation. And so Paul says, you've rightly understood the immensity of grace, but let me ask you this. Why would you keep sinning? Why would you keep on living a life of rebellion and self-centered living and, and deal with all those uh, habits that you've been in bondage to when you have died to them and you can be free. And that's what he's about to explain to us in, in Romans chapter 6 is how that freedom occurs. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, when we were having the dedication of Aden just a little while ago, I mentioned baptism. And uh, every once in a while we have a baptismal service here. And people uh, come into this pool behind me that's behind the screen. And they're baptized as a public testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to be clear this morning about what happens in water baptism. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here or crass, but I just want to be perfectly clear. What happens literally and physically, when people are baptized in this pool behind me, is they get wet. That's all that happens. There is nothing about that water that washes away any sin. It looks like it's come from somewhere that's washed away sin, because it's, it's always got so much iron in it, it's horrible looking. But, but there's nothing about it that washes away any sin. What happens in this baptistry is merely a symbolic testimony of what God has done for us spiritually in a place that we can't see. Now, we can only see what's out here in front of us in the, in the physical world. That's what we can see. We can't see inside the soul of a person and know what God is doing in there. And so baptism by immersion in water is an outward, visible illustration of what God has done in our lives already. The other day I took a Bible off the shelf that I have not opened in quite a long time. I have quite a few Bibles and that happens sometimes. And this one is the one I used in college and it's all taped up and it has uh, contact paper around it and it's, you know, it's kind of hold, hold, held together. And as I opened the Bible, uh, something fell out of it and I picked that something up, and there was an old bulletin there, and there was also a person's name and a phone number. And I looked at that, and uh, I just went back between the services and looked, and that bulletin was from 2000. It was seven years ago in April. 
And the person whose name and phone number was written there has already died and gone to be with God in heaven. And, you know, it just kind of, it, it just kind of startled me as I opened it and, and that fell out and I was just reminded all of a sudden afresh of, of a friend that I once had and now he's already gone into the presence of Christ. I'm glad I'll see him again. But I realized that that Bible's been a lot of places in the last seven years and wherever that Bible went, that bulletin and that notepaper went with it. It was there from shelf to shelf and room to room. It's probably been home and back a few times in my briefcase. Wherever that Bible went, that paper has gone. Just like I put my outline and your study questions in my Bible just now, and if I were to leave it there, wherever this Bible goes, it goes. Paul says, do you not understand that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we need to get this. God not only forgave our sins because of the blood that Christ shed on the cross, but he, in a way that we cannot see, but which he tells us is true, he put us into Jesus Christ. So that everything that happened to Jesus has become spiritually true of us. And when people come into these waters of baptism, they come out of Herb's office, which represents the land of sin. <laughs> Herb was in the first service, and he got a kick out of that. But they come out of Herb's office saying, I have lived for myself all my life. I've done whatever I wanted to do, I, I've been a free agent, <laughs> and, and I've just lived it up, but I've gotten into some trouble and problems, and I recognize I've been offending God. And so I'm coming out of that, and they come down into this baptistry, and they say, I want you to know I've turned from that old way of life, and I have now turned to follow Jesus Christ. And they come into the, to the pool, and they stand beside me. And when they do that, I ask them some questions about their faith and their commitment to Jesus Christ. And they give testimony that they have trusted Christ. And then I say words to this effect. My friend, on the basis of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And at that time I put my hand in the small of their back and I cover their nose with my other hand and I have them bend their knees and they go down below the water and I say these words, buried with Christ by baptism into death and raised with him to walk in a new life as they come up and they go out that door into Hector's office. Well, you can figure that out. But they go out that side symbolizing that they are now walking in a brand new life. Friends, Paul is telling us that's a picture of what God literally does for us in our soul. He puts us into Jesus Christ. And whatever happened to Jesus happens to us. Now, what happened to Jesus? First of all, the Scripture tells us that He came into this world as a human being in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the Holy Spirit uh, created and crafted a body for him and placed him in the womb of Mary, and that he was born of a woman, born in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the Bible calls him the last Adam. And in that person of Adam, in Adam's nature, 
he lived on this planet. And Romans chapter 8 tells us that as he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in his flesh. What does that mean? It means he did it right. Every time that he was confronted with temptation, he successfully dealt with it. You know what I mean by successfully? He never sinned. Every time he successfully dealt with it. Jesus was tempted just exactly like Adam and Eve were. You remember the fruit in the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What Eve and Adam said? It looks good for food. It's desirable to, to, to make one wise. And it's, it's luscious to behold. We love this stuff. It looks fantastic. And when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted directly by Satan himself, the scripture says he faced three trials that we know of. One of them was to turn stones into bread. I need food. This will work. The next one was to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and make a smashing debut in Jerusalem, no pun intended, because the angels would bear you up and you'll land fantastically and everybody will follow you and adore you. Ah, that's kind of nice. Or, bow down and worship me, Satan said, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You want stuff? I got stuff. I'll give you all the stuff you want. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Those are the three areas of temptation that every one of us faced. Jesus repeatedly faced those, and every time he was tempted, he successfully obeyed the will of God. So that when he arrived at Gethsemane on the day that he was crucified, from the second of his birth until the time of his death, he had never once sinned. He faced temptation in the flesh and condemned it at every turn so that he might be the sacrifice for us. And when he died on the cross and shed his blood for my sin, the scripture says that when he was buried... He made possible, if I would trust him and put my faith in him, for me to be buried. That I could die to that old nature, that old sinful self. I could die and go into the grave with him so that I could come out a new person. This is the portal. This is the opening through which we can pass from death to life. We can move out of this realm that of, of sin dragging us down and move into life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, a lot of Christians live their lives like this. They go through the day and they make all kinds of mistakes. They, make all, they do all kinds of things. They come to the end of the day and they say, God, I want you to forgive me. Forgive me for this. Forgive me for my loss of temper. Forgive me for getting... Um, frustrated with, with, with my spouse, forgive me for yelling at my kids, forgive me uh, for putting that change in my pocket that was too much at the cash register, not saying anything about it, and a whole lot more. You know, and then, and then they get up the next day and they expect the same old experience. You know, I've got a lousy temper, I'm irritable, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, I'm going to be biting everybody's head off. I'm going to get through another day and I'm going to come to the end of the day and I'm going to pray the same prayer. Lord, forgive me for this, forgive me for that, forgive me for the other thing, forgive me for all this stuff. Wouldn't you like to get off that merry-go-round? Wouldn't you like to be different? Wouldn't you like to, to, to not have a sour disposition? Wouldn't you like to 
to have your temper controlled? Wouldn't you like to have the driving lust for more stuff to just quiet down for a little bit so you can get perspective on reality instead of spending yourself into indebtedness that you can never get out? Wouldn't you like to have a transformation in your life? Don't worry, he's one of my greatest fans. He's just saying amen. I mean, wouldn't you like to get out of the rat race? That's exactly what Paul's saying. Many Christians do not understand that Jesus died to break the power of sin, and he made it possible for us to go with him and die to our old nature that we could rise and be born again. Last night, uh, was it last night? No, it was Saturday night. No, it was Friday night, actually. Sorry, I lose track of days. It's Friday night. We had uh, Stephen and Megan over, and they brought Caden over, and he's a little guy, you know. He's still pretty young, about four months. And uh, babies are just sweet, aren't they? Even when they cry, they're sweet, aren't they? Right, Ashley? Where are you? <laughs> yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're great. Their skin is just Amazing. I'm talking about your kid, right? <laughs> but it's good stuff. You know, their, their skin is just amazing. It, it's, it's just so pure. It's so soft. You know, and their hair, it's finer than silk, but it's softer. You know, I, I have some silk things and they're not very soft, but the, the, their babies, it's just amazing. Their complexions are so pure. They're, they're, they're a they're, they're just sweet. You know, they, they will grow up and some of that will change. But, but when they're little like that, I mean, they're just, they're just precious. That's a new life. When, don't you wish sometimes you could just go back and have one like that? I mean, can I get a do-over for life? You know, can I just start out with a clean... Can I, can I do this again? Being born again is not a deep mystery in that sense. That's what it means. You can die to the old person in Christ and come out a new person in newness of life. God has that plan for you. And so there's an offer being made here. Why would you go on living under the old slavery and the domination of, of, of of things that drag you down when there's a way out that God has for you that will give you a brand new start like that baby's life. That's to be born again. And so Paul says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why did we die in Christ? So we could be born again in Christ. Why did we die in Christ? So we could be raised in Him. This is the portal out of the bondage and into a life that is free and open and clear and wonderful. Why would you want to live the old way? When the possibility exists of living the new way, you know, I'm grateful. When I look back over my life, I've been a Christ follower for about 40 years now, almost 37 years. 
And I am glad to tell you, you may not know this, but you didn't know me when I was 16, 17. I am glad to tell you that a lot of things have changed in my life. I'm growing. I can look back and I see things I used to do I don't do anymore. They're different. I have to be honest, there's stuff that God kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, well, we got a lot of that stuff out of the way, now we need to work on this. You know, and, and he brings it. But there's hope. I'm not consigned to every night, oh, forgive me for that, forgive me for that, forgive me for that, forgive me again, I did it again and again and again. There's, there's a way out. And he's telling me this, through Jesus Christ, I can have all that stuff broken and changed. And we emerge into a new life. You say, it doesn't feel like it. I feel like my same old self. Well, part of the thing is you have to realize by faith that what God is telling you is true. You know, there is an illustration in nature that fits. Do you like butterflies? Do you enjoy their beauty, their freedom, the way they flit about? Anybody ever try to photograph a butterfly? <laughs> they don't fly like birds. You can almost predict what a bird's going to do, but not butterflies. I mean, they're just all over the place. And uh, they don't start out as butterflies. They start out as caterpillars. You know, they look like worms. And they crawl in this tomb that looks like a casket. And they weave it all around them. And they just kind of hang there for a while. And then one day, when it's the right time, they start to wriggle out of that thing. And when they do, something has happened on the inside. That what comes out of it is not a worm. I'm not speaking in biological, technical terms, okay? So if you're a biologist, just put up with me. But what comes out of it is not a worm. It has wings. It has a different shape. It can fly. If you look closely at a close-up image of a butterfly, you can see vestiges of the old caterpillar. But if you look at the way it acts and the way it lives and what it does, it's just a totally different animal from all appearances. And yet, it's one life form that has been transformed. And you know what's amazing about that? We call that process in biology, now I'm being technical, we call that metamorphosis. But did you know that that is the Greek word, metamorpheo, that Paul uses in Corinthians to tell us that we are changed day by day into his likeness. We are metamorphosed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So when, when we see the possibilities, what Paul is asking here is, why would you want to live any other way? When you can fly, who wants to crawl around on the ground? When you can soar and swoop and dart and dash and land on these incredible flowers and, and just smell the nectar and, and just be free as a butterfly, why would you want to crawl around on the ground? Who wants to live like that? Now what I'm telling you this morning, there's not a practical application in the sense that you can't go out and, and, and do this sermon. Okay, I didn't give you any how-tos. And Paul doesn't give us any how-tos. What Paul does give us here is a, is a 
fundamental belief that we need to embrace and accept in order to move forward. Because we have to understand this and we have to trust by faith that it is true. So that when we are confronted with sin, next week we'll deal with this. You know, if I'm dead to sin, why does it still yell at me every day? If my old nature has died, why is it still talking to me all the time? I'm going to deal with that next week. But for the moment, the thing that we need to do is by faith believe what Paul is telling us through the Holy Spirit. You have died in Jesus Christ. Your old nature has died in him. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. There is fantastic potential for you in the spiritual life. Yes, grace is free and it's boundless and it goes on forever. And if you sin, you can never out the grace of God. But why would you want to? When you can go to bed at night and hear the Father say, It's been a good day today. Well done. It's been fun to walk with you. I tell you, there's nothing I long more than to hear those words from Jesus Christ when I see him face to face. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And it's possible because of what he enables. Father, I want to pray this morning that you will give us insight and understanding into this marvelous truth. That we will by faith believe that we have been placed in Jesus Christ. We can't see that. It's not something that happens on the outside. But by faith, we recognize you have put us in him and made it possible for us to die to our old nature and to be raised to a new life. And like the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly, we can be metamorphosed into the character of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that for the moment this morning, you would just help us get our hands around that and by faith believe that it's true. Even if we have questions, okay, how does it work? God, I don't understand how this plays out in my daily life. I need, I need some insight. Just for today, help us believe that what you have said is absolutely true and that having said this, you have more that will give us understanding. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.